Hello, Oyster Bay. Welcome to this week's edition of the Oyster Bay Arena, the podcast for and about the people, places, and things that make Oyster Bay, New York, the awesome place that it is. Uh, This week, our guest is Ted Barr. Ted Barr is the owner of the Bar Gallery here in Oyster Bay. Uh, What is the Bar Gallery, you might wonder? Uh, Well, the Bar Gallery is an art gallery. It specializes in psychedelic poster art from the psychedelic era, the mid to late 1960s. Uh, Some quite wacky and wonderful pop art was created during uh, and around the Summer of Love, and we have a huge selection of it right here in Oyster Bay. Who knew? Uh, These were posters that were originally created to advertise rock concerts, and they have since become collectible uh, works of art over the intervening years. But Mark, you may ask, I didn't know there was a psychedelic poster art gallery in Oyster Bay. Where is it? How would I go about visiting such a place? What happens there? Well, Ted and I discuss all of that and more in our 45-minute discussion that we recorded last weekend. Uh, The spoiler, Ted's gallery is right next to 20th Century Cycles, Billy Joel's Motorcycle Museum in the old Ben's Gardens space. So Ted has a great story, and I am uh, excited to share it with you. Uh, After years of running a successful media company on Long Island, Ted sold it uh, and started a second act following his passion. Um, Collecting and selling these works of art from the 1960s is clearly a labor of love for Ted and his appreciation for that era uh, and his depth of knowledge about psychedelic poster art is truly impressive. Um, In in the true spirit of the 60s, Ted sees the the bar gallery as more than a gallery. Um, He's really interested in building a community around the shared values of the era and the appreciation of the music and culture of the psychedelic uh, times. Um, to that end, several times a year, Ted hosts musical events in the space. Uh, usually they are artists related to the Grateful Dead or other psychedelic bands. And uh, if you have not gone, I, I highly recommend it. It is a great night out in Oyster Bay. Uh, there's usually wine and cheese and um, just a good music and a great feeling of camaraderie and community. It's close enough to, uh, to the beach that if you get down there within the next uh, week or so, you can go see Tiger Woods' boat anchored over there since he's been using this as sort of a home base while he's over at the PGA Tour. So Ted and I discussed um, a bunch of different things, but one uh, one thing we did discuss was posters made for the Boston Tea Party, which was one of the great psychedelic music venues of the 1960s. Uh, and the music you hear coming up in the background came from a Grateful Dead performance at the venue on December 29th, 1969. Uh, it doesn't get more psychedelic than that. So tune in, turn on, and drop by my conversation with Ted Barr. Hope you like it. I'll see you later. Welcome to this week's episode of the Oyster Bay Arena. Uh, this week I am talking to Ted Bear or bar? Bar. Bar. That was my, uh, my first question. Um, who, who is the proprietor, the owner of the Bar Gallery in downtown Oyster Bay? Uh, I believe you were in the former site of Ben's Garden. That's right. And uh, it's, you know, describe the space. It's, uh, well, it's an art gallery, and it's an art gallery that um, specializes in uh, psychedelic poster art. And uh, I'm looking around, and, uh, you know, I was in here when it was Ben's, and I don't remember that beautiful tin ceiling in here. 
Is that uh, something you uncovered during your re renovations? No, actually the tin ceiling was here. It, it was. was uh, I believe that this building is, was um, put up in 1910. Uh, and we, we did sheetrock over one of the, there was actually tin walls as well, um, mm -hmm. or tin backing. And so in one area we sheetrocked over them, but we preserved them. Uh, so it's much better for an art gallery, but if somebody wants to take that sheetrock down and have the, uh, the tin backing, they can. I mean, it, it really, uh, you get a lot of light in here considering that the, the light is only coming in from the front, but I guess some of that is, uh, is the light work that you installed um, to highlight the, the posters yes well and the ceiling has got to be about what do you think 20 feet high yeah probably something like that so it's a wonderful space and that's that's one of the fun things that we do here is we have events um, and we have music and that works really well in a space like this all showcased with this amazing art from the late 60s yeah absolutely I mean you you opened when in, in 2018 yep April 2018 and uh, so I've interviewed a few people from Oyster Bay now, and my, my question is always, what, what is your association with the town? How did you decide that Oyster Bay was going to be the spot that you would open up a gallery like this? Well, um, I live in Laurel Hollow, so that's, that's very nearby to Oyster Bay. So um, that's the first reason it's, it's my business. I get to locate it where I yeah, want. Right. But, for example, I, I really didn't want the more active street traffic of um, walking of uh, Huntington because what we do is so specialized and I feel that Oyster Bay is um, is really undergoing a renaissance right now with places like with uh, the restaurants like Osteria Leona obviously to spring Autentico um, and Wild Honey's been here for a while but also very good Nikkei the Nikkei uh, Peruvian sushi right. uh, fusion uh, restaurant is really good and of course we're next door to Billy Joel's motorcycle museum so the space just the space was available and when I walked in I said this is perfect and Oyster Bay is going to be just fine yeah um, and, and all those restaurants most of them that you mentioned have just uh, appeared within the last few years so it really is interesting to watch the town sort of uh, have, have its have its renaissance because for years downtown was a little uh, it was just not much here you know well it's it's true and actually Interestingly enough, um, when I started my business prior to this, which was called BZ Media, I was located in uh, above the old Nobbins hardware before it uh, burned yes. down and was replaced with the new Nobbins hardware. And I was also above, had offices above the Oyster Bay Coin Gallery. So I was here from 1999 to 2005 or so. And then we moved the business crew. We moved to Huntington and then later to Melville. And then I sold the business. But I was here in Oyster Bay for about five years with as a business owner and I remember I would write about once a quarter I would write an email to Starbucks and <laughs> beg them to come to Oyster Bay and point out that it was at the intersection of about you know 15 you know very affluent um, uh, little towns and incorporated villages and that basically I, I felt that the town really needed uh, a bit of a jolt of course, we now we have Southdown Coffee. We do, and, um, and excellent and coffee all these, shop. And these restaurants. Did, did Starbucks ever write back? Uh, not as such. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know they were, they were looking at that spot that was up on uh, 25A. Um, it, I guess it was, uh, it was a Hojo's back in the 70s, and then, then it was the Pancake House, and then it was a diner next to the Chase Bank. And uh, 
somebody said they said uh, they didn't think they would get enough traffic, which I think is uh, ridiculous. But I agree. I mean, I think that they they generate their own traffic. I mean, it's yeah, uh, that's so, sure. and that's that's why I was. That's why I was hoping that we could try to lure one into Oyster Bay because I thought that you know that just makes it a place a place to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's true of South Down and, and uh, Sweetie Pies, which is in Cold Spring Harbor. You know, people meet there um, as well, and of course Huntington has a number of places. So yeah, uh, it's it's interesting because whenever a business starts here, um, I, I always walk by and I keep my fingers crossed that it's, I'm still going to see it. You know, a year or so uh, from when it opens and and. Uh, because you know it's it's an interesting it's an interesting town. You you, you kind of got to do your research into what's gonna what's gonna last here. What people are what people are gonna patronize. Unless you're in a specialized niche like yours, where you're not relying on so much people wandering by and walking in. Uh, do you do advertising mostly? Um, is it word of mouth? Is it uh, um, internet uh, reputation in the industry? Uh, how do you get people in in the door? Well, a lot of it for the first year has been um, has been word of mouth oriented. So I'm fairly enthusiastic, let's say, about if somebody comes in and is interested in the pieces and interested in what we're doing, I really encourage them to get on the mailing list. And so then, so I've built a mailing list that's almost a thousand names already, which is pretty good from what I understand talking to other art galleries. And... Uh, and then we have events. We have events that draw people in that people want to come to. We've we are we're really actually building a community here. Um, there are a lot of people who uh, will come to the music or come to the different events and tell their friends. They may not buy they may not buy a piece themselves, but they you know, someone always knows somebody who is an enthusiast um, who could become a customer down the road. Yeah. Um, we are very close to having our internet strategy. Um, worked out in terms of the website. We do have a website, bargallery.com, but we, uh, it's mostly promoting the brick-and-mortar presence that we have, right. giving people a flavor of what we're doing. So, but I'm in it for the long term. I have a five-year lease, so we have, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a slow burn building the customer base that it really, really digs what we do. And I think that that's, to some ex- in some respects, that's one of the future uh, success points for retail overall is being very specialized and building a small but passionate tribe of customers and people that really like what you do. And uh, I'm fortunate to have the wherewithal, having sold my other business, to, to take the long-term view and to be here for a long time and build build slowly and build properly. That's a, it's a it's a good position to, to be in. Um, you, you, you talk about retail, you know, it's funny thinking of art as retail some, somewhat, but, um, you know, a business like this is essentially Amazon proof. I mean, you're not, no one's going to go onto, uh, onto a site like Amazon and search for psychedelic poster art and, and buy something. Uh, it, it's more, a you know, word of word of mouth and uh, a reputational business, isn't it? Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, we are we do consider ourselves to be relatively Amazon proof, and I think in retail you have to be that way. Um, I think about this a lot, and I don't. I I didn't think of myself as retail, but it, the business does have characteristics of retail. So last year, fifty percent of our sales were in November and December, mm. and At we Christmas. Have, <laughs> well, it, you know, it's also a time when people are willing to. 
uh, are willing to are willing to buy. You know, in the winter, a lot of times people are you know maybe they've got bills. You know, they paid the Christmas bills oh, and yeah. right. holiday bills or something like that, and so they're just they're not really necessarily there to treat themselves. And so um, I think that's that may be part of it. But the uh, I saw an article recently which talked about the number of independent bookstores in the country um, since 2009. It's actually uh, increased by 50% from yep. about 1,600 to 2,400 independent bookstores. And I've read a number of articles about individual bookstores and individual places. And you know, they're all run by people like me, meaning somebody who has the ability to do things right, to do them, to really serve the customer. And we don't have to make tons of money really fast. Right. Um, and Again, I think that's that's part of the future. What the retail landscape will look like is passionate enthusiasts that are that are selling uh, something that that they love and that they understand and that they can communicate to that small group of equally enthusiastic buyers. Yeah, the the hope is that that intersection finds itself a uh, thing you're passionate about. Plus, you can make money doing it, which is it's not. <laughs> Not, those things don't often come together, um, but when they do, it's it's great. Um, so that kind of gets me to how you got into this in the, in the first place, because um, uh, you, you you did run a, a media company right prior to this, yeah. And then uh, I guess in, in um, you started that in '99, you said. And when when did you decide I'm I'm going to want to do something different, looking for a second act, or or how did you how did you get into this? Have you been collecting these for? Uh, longer than than when you started the this business yes the i collected a few of them and i really love the art of the period and the music of the period and the period right itself <laughs> um when i was in college which was in the late 70s uh, so i'm 60 years old um born in 1958 so i missed the 60s and so that's of course that's why i revere them but um <laughs> Uh, so I collected a little bit, um, and then I got busy with wife and career and life and kids and all that stuff. Sure. So, uh, so things were sort of on hiatus. And then about six or seven years ago, my company moved to large offices in Melville, and I realized I had all this space and I could start collecting the posters again and subject my employees to them. <laughs> so, um, so that's what I did. And then in 2017, I sold the business and was casting about for what the next thing was going to be. And my wife said, well, why don't you sell the posters? Now, I'm not sure exactly what she meant by that, <laughs> but I took it to mean that I should go into business selling the posters. <laughs> why not? So here we are. I'm not sure that was her original intent, <laughs> bless her heart. But, um, but I thought that there was, uh, there was, there's a huge wave of nostalgia among the baby boomers, and the baby boomers are... Financially, they're in a position where they're selling their business, they're retiring, they're, their um, depression-era parents are passing on and you know, having you know, held on to, to every penny, mm. having grown up in the depression. There are significant inheritances that, that are being uh, handed down. And so basically, and the kids are done with, co you're done paying with college, that sort of thing, and basically now it's me time. And so you see that with baby boomers going to festivals like Coachella and you, you go to these festivals, which are everywhere, and you are super VIP, four days, glamping, you know, which is camping, glamorous right. camping. Glamping, a glamping, super VIP glamping ticket is $8,000 yeah. for two people. So 
you come in here and, and you see uh, my posters, which are range from around $1,200 to $32,000. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really that expensive in a way. Right. Um, people are willing to spend on their, their youth, their passion, their memory. It's called nostalgia, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's mostly the demographic of who's, who's buying these is, is tax on the older side, boomer side? It is, although there's a lot of, a lot of people that are, say, in their 40s or late 30s and, and even younger that are enthusiastic about the period. This was the late 1960s was a unique utopian period of you know peace and love and now of course when you were actually really there just like Woodstock was a wonderful event but also it was full of mud and rain right for people that were actually there and of course in the real 60s environment it was massive upheaval massive turmoil I tell my kids my wife if they're upset about the political landscape today yeah. I say you know it's not think 1968 back. <laughs> no and in 1968 if you think back I mean how did our parents deal with that how did they feel about it you know what what was happening to this country so to speak it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum but um, but yeah but there was a utopian ideal that was behind a lot of what was going on in the night in the late 1960s and I think that's the chord that we're striking here mm-hmm yeah, it's interesting because I was here for uh, Scott, Scott Gruberman, who is uh, a um, keyboard player for, uh, well, among other things, Phil Lesh's, the bass player from The Grateful Dead, his solo band. And uh, I was kind of looking around at the crowd and, and you know, I'm, I'm 51 and I was, I think I was the youngest person here by about 10 years. And, you know, being a, a, a Grateful Dead fan, you know, through the 80s, uh, it was always such a, such a mixture of, of people would go to the shows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, coming here, it's, it sort of didn't, didn't occur to me that, um, that there were, the fans were going to be 20, 30 years older than the, as old as they were in 1985. It just kind of blew my mind a little bit that a lot of folks, you know, who were, you know, boogieing across the floor were like in their late 60s or, or 70s, you know? Well, there's a lot of those. There's a lot of those people out there. Like I said, now it's me time for them. But uh, the younger crowd, actually, you know, we had a. We, it was a, it was a spring break, mm-hmm. uh, so actually, those all the forty year olds were taking their kids to Disneyland yeah, or there something you go, like that. Right. So, so there was actually literally a reason for that. But um, well, because you also had David Gans here uh, in the fall, and I, right. you know, I saw pictures of that event. It seemed like a, the age was a little more diversified. You know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so we do. So we're are mythical best customer mm-hmm. I, I term the hedge fund deadhead <laughs> so about 70% of our customers are what I would call dead centric uh, meaning Grateful Dead and related bands or sort of Grateful Dead is maybe the entry door or or certain certainly a, a large room in their house um, psychologically in terms of their interest <laughs> right. in what we do here um, but it's certainly not limited to Grateful Dead by any means. Um, as you can see, we're sitting here in the main gallery right now with a, an exhibition on the British invasion. Yeah. So we're surrounded by uh, Beatles. We've got Richard Avedon, Beatle, psychedelicized Beatle heads. We've got the very last, a poster for the very last Beatles concert ever they ever played in August 29th, 1966, which was done by Wes Wilson, the father of the psychedelic poster. And, uh, and yeah, we've got Led Zeppelin, Yardbirds, Cream, Pink Floyd, Moody Blues, Jethro Tull, January 1969, Led Zeppelin. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. When you talk about the psychedelic poster era, are, is it, are we talking about a discrete period of time in the 60s? Like is it, uh, or 
from like say 65 to, to 70 or does it go on through the present day? Sure, no, that, that's, that's exactly right and that's a good question. The, the psychedelic poster movement really got started in the spring of 66 and was at its height really from 66 to 68, uh, maybe into 69. By 69 and 70, and certainly by 1970, rock and roll was moving from what had previously been a cottage industry to being a big business. After Woodstock, things were just continuing to get larger. Um, in 1967, you would only have one underground FM radio station per city. Right. By 1971-72, you would have six, seven, eight FM rock stations all you know, happy to promote concerts. Um, and so the promoters, who were the uh, patrons of the poster artists, i.e. the ones that paid, paid for the posters to be developed, they said, we don't need these posters anymore. Mm -hmm. And so they stopped paying for them, and the artists stopped doing them. They went on to album covers and things like that. Yeah. And uh, really, there was a vacuum in the 70s and 80s. There was a pretty significant vacuum. And then in the 90s, a whole new crop of, uh, crop of poster artists uh, came out, uh, Chuck Sperry, Emek, Mark Minsky, others, and they, they were um, patronized, or their patrons were bands like Pearl Jam and Dave Matthews and Fish, um, and sort of the jam bands. Right. And they all let, they, of course, their heritage was coming out of that Grateful Dead uh, sphere, not so much Pearl's, Pearl Jam, but certainly uh, the jam bands. Right. And so... Um, I recall seeing a few of those posters from the Seattle scene uh, that were in the style of the psychedelic posters from the 60s. And, exactly. You know, I think maybe the right, you know, the fact that the internet was starting to grab some traction back then, you could, you could do the art and then expose a larger number of... You don't necessarily need to hang it on the wall to advertise a concert. You can do it as art itself, right? Yes, but you still have to invest in it. So the right. posters, the posters of today are what, what are called commemorative posters. So these are posters that you can buy at the concert, uh, and they're an investment, like merchandise. Right. You know, you buy the T-shirt. Well, somebody's had to pay to have yeah. the T-shirt well, made. Well, Dead and Company has has been touring the last few years, and they do a poster for every show right. uh, on the tour, and I think people collect those. And right, is that, that that's what you're talking about, right? That kind that's of correct. Yeah. So the posters of the late '60s were what I call working farm animals. So these were designed; these were used to sell tickets to shows. Mm -hmm. So very different uh, purpose. So they were printed before the concert. Um, those are the ones that we specialize in, never not not reprints, but the original first edition. And uh, yeah, they were used to set, to um, spread the word. And then at one point, I, I just learned this, that um, Bill Graham of the Fillmore in San Francisco would have, um, they would also distribute posters to people that were at a show for next week's show. Oh, interesting. And so he would say, Viral the marketing. first 500 people that, that leave the show, right. to get them out of the Fillmore. I mean, mm -hmm. these guys are all, they're stoned, they're sure. tripping, they're, yeah. they have no place to go. <laughs> have a poster. <laughs> That's right. So if you, if you leave now, yeah, you will get one of the posters for next week's show. So <laughs> that's great. Um, where do you find these things? Because I mean, the '60s is 50 years ago, and and uh, you know, I'd imagine a lot of them were not uh, the people of the time, like you said, were were a little out there. Um, you know, is it hard locating ones in good condition? Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, that's I mean, that's that's why they're expensive. I right. mean, you can. You can find a piece that's you know been ripped up and missing all sorts of its image and things like that for for less. Mm -hmm. So condition definitely uh, is a factor in the price. But uh, some people did recognize them as collectible um, pieces of art and 
you know, they hoarded them. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank goodness for that because then others like us can overpay for them later. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, that is an issue that there are, you know, there aren't nearly as many as were originally originally created. So um, I buy them typically at some very specialized auctions mm-hmm. where the, the auction house essentially uh, – they, the auction house used to be a poster shop years ago, and now they're, they're into online auctions. So, right. But they specialize in these posters, and the reason I want to buy from them is because they, their reputation is on the line. They can't sell a pirated copy. They can't sell a reprint as a first edition, things like that. So, you know, eBay, of course, is the ultimate caveat emptor, let yeah, the buyer sure. beware. And so I don't buy on eBay. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, there's a a big thick book about two inches thick that says sort of the Bible of the industry in terms of like many collectible industries where you've got details about which is a first edition, which is a second edition, which a third edition of the poster and things like that. So, um, so, but I'm getting them from pretty specialized sources. Right. Um, you know, I, I had no idea these things were collectible, um, you know, going through the eighties, but I lived on the Lower East Side in, in Manhattan and, uh, there was a shop on 8th Street called The Psychedelic Solution, which um, had all these posters in it. And I remember walking in there as a, as a college kid and looking at the prices even then and thinking, geez, I, I had no idea people, people were so into these things. And uh, that's how I ended up meeting that guy, Brad Kelly, who I think you know from, he has an auction site. That's right. I was, I was poking around when I was doing a little research for this interview and, and sort of looked at his site. Um, so, I mean, reputation is everything, right? Because you're, you're bidding on these things and, and you know, you have to assume that what you're getting is, is legit. Is, is, um, is fraud like a big problem or is it more like some people have like a third edition and trying to sell it as a first edition or? I think the, I think the industry, you know, among the hardcore collectors that they police themselves pretty well. Yeah. So, um, so there are certain posters that are, that are sort of well known for being pirated, bootlegged, and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So I can, you know, I get somebody, you know, at least once a month walking in with, you know, their Woodstock poster, the first edition Woodstock poster, and so I actually have a printout that I just show them and say here, or I can send them a file saying here's how you know, right? And sorry, it doesn't have the telltale signs and things like that. <laughs> so sorry to disappoint people, but. Um, you know, it's it's important if you want the real thing to buy from somebody that knows what they're doing. So, um, yeah, I met with with Jay Castor, who is the owner of the Psychedelic Solution, oh, yeah. um, and a number of his uh, salespeople uh, have turned out to be like Brad Kelly mm-hmm. doing uh, doing this for their business. Um, so, but uh, you know, there's one guy in the industry that is sort of known for not having a very good gauge of quality. That, in other words, he he'll say that a poster is a in excellent condition. It's really in kind of good plus right. that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. so, I won't buy anything in his auction. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been another case where with another auction house where I you know I sent something back because they had not represented something that was on the poster that you know there was yeah. like an ink there was an ink stain on it that wasn't represented, and they they took it back you know ha- happily right. Um, just looking around the room here, I mean, there, there's so many great posters up, but what really uh, is great about coming, coming here is the, 
level of detail that you provide in the synopsis is underneath the poster. Uh, just the history of the poster, the event it was advertising. I mean, that sounds like it's an enormous amount of work to run all that information down. Um, how, how do you even take a poster from, say, this Pink Floyd Oakland Coliseum, May 9th and 10th, 1977, and then come up with four or five paragraphs about that? Well, fortunately, there is this thing called Google. Yeah, well, right, yes. <laughs> but yes. no, you're exactly right, <laughs> is that the, the time it takes me to write a placard is somewhere, it's usually around 45 minutes to an hour each of research, and some posters will be several hours of research. So um, I make myself feel better by telling myself that once I do a particular piece, it's done. Right. So in other words, I can sell, I can sell that piece over and over uh, potentially, and I don't have to rewrite the placard each time. So, but it is a labor of love, and about once a week I do you know, look up and say, Am I really, is this really my full-time job? <laughs> <laughs> How many pieces would you say you have overall? So at the, at the bar gallery, at any given time, we have about 65 to 70 pieces that are framed and uh, looking out at you from their custom frames and from behind uh, nearly invisible museum glass. So there's very, very nice presentation. So we have about 65 to 70 at any given time. And then there's another, I've got another 80 that are in art closets. So they're framed and, and just in the closet. So we have a book somebody can look through for that. Um, and I'll be building another art closet as well. So um, my total, right now, totally, I have about 430 and 430 pieces. So I have flat files where they're, the other ones are in the flat files. They're not framed yet. And uh, we have sold about 45 since we opened oh, really? 13 yeah. months ago. So, You do the framing yourself? Uh, no, actually I use Sally Esposito who has a framing store in Huntington, a oh. framing workshop. So okay. she's kind of my, you know, we, we, and the frames also take at least 20 to 30 minutes to, you know, to figure out how to perfectly frame a piece right. and that sort of thing. So, Yeah, they're all, all the posters are different. I imagine you have to, I mean, most of the matting is... Uh, no, I guess the matting is all different depending on the depending on the item. The matting is different. I mean, right now we're looking at a wall which has about uh, you know ten pieces, and they all have black mats. Mm -hmm. But I just framed up a bunch of pieces for our next exhibition, which is opening June twenty one, which is Woodstock and other festivals, featuring Jimi Hendrix. Right. Uh, and we got a whole bunch with white mats, so it depends on the piece. Right. Um, and that sh that show starts at the end of June. You said, um, how often do you transition the the pieces around like I transition you the British piece. you're doing a British invasion theme now that's right. right and that will go through uh I think I think June 9th and then there we have a you know a two-week uh, sort of break where we're still open and actually the British invasion will still be hung but then at some point one day mm -hmm. that'll all be gone and then the other one will be up Woodstock will be up so uh so Woodstock's being framed now I'm starting to do the research on the on the on the placards um and so we'll do about four, four shows a year. So in the fall, uh, fall is basically our annual Grateful Dead exhibition. So that will run from October through the end of November, and then we'll probably mix it up for December. And uh, we have David Gans coming um, to um, That's fine. You know, October 4th. Hi, Jen. How's it going? Nice to see you. Okay. I think we're back. 
Okay, so um, so you have the British invasion, and then you're 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 going to do the Woodstock commemorative. Is there a lot of overlap in the artists between the posters of the different generations? Like the same poster artists who did did the Grateful Dead at the Avalon in the late in the '66, doing posters for Woodstock in '69. There is a uh, the the psychedelic poster uh, movement, or the and really the San Francisco school of artists. It was really San Francisco centric. Uh, there's the big five um, who were there really in 66 and 67 and they're, and they're referred to as the big five. So that's Wes Wilson who's considered the father of the psychedelic poster and then Stanley Mouse and Alton Kelly, mm -hmm. uh, Mouse and Kelly and they do done a lot of Grateful Dead um, particularly but then uh, Rick Griffin and Victor Moscoso round out the big five and then there's probably what you would call maybe the little eight <laughs> um, which are other poster artists that had done quite a few of the of the pieces. So they would they would do a piece based on whoever was playing. So so it's the same poster artist doing, uh, you know, doing the Yardbirds, doing uh, the Moody Blues, doing so pretty much the, the same. Um, Woodstock is a very unique poster. Arnold Skolnick, who did that poster, um, that's the only poster that he did. Uh, mm. So um, there was the New York School, Seymour uh, Choist, and um, uh, Milton Glaser. Um, there were the uh, the London artists like Martin Sharp and the Hapash uh, group. And then there were a couple of other assorted psychedelic artists uh, that were doing posters, particularly Gary Grimshaw in Detroit and uh, Gilbert Shelton and the Vulcan Gas Group in Austin, Texas. But, and then there's Boston Tea, uh, the, the Boston Tea Party, which was the Fillmore of Boston. Right. And those posters, most of which were done by Bob Driscoll. Um, they were sort of minimalist, like, like anti-psychedelic in a way, hmm. uh, but also quite, uh, really quite compelling to look at, so. So of the big five, are any of them still alive? Uh, that was a great question that I asked myself um, a couple of years ago. And, I, and the answer led me to actually commission a poster for the bar gallery by Wes Wilson, the no father kidding. of the psychedelic poster. So three of the big five are still alive, uh, Victor Moscoso, Stanley Mouse, and Wes Wilson. Hmm. Have you, have, well, you met uh, Wes, but have you met any of the other ones? Yes, I've met them all um, that are alive because they, there is a one-day event in San Francisco most years. It's been every year for the last couple of years at least. And it's called the TRIPS Festival. Mm -hmm. And TRIPS stands for the Rock Poster Society. Ah. And so uh, most of the poster artists will go there and they have a booth and they'll sign your posters. You know, you pay them. Right. Uh, that sort of thing, like, like baseball cards, I guess, at sure. a convention. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder if, if you have any idea what they think about the whole fact that their posters are now extremely collectible. Uh, do they have any expectation that that was going to be the case back in the day when they were first doing this sort of thing? Well, I'm not sure if they did or what they, or if they felt, you know, there was something that they could particularly do about it. There was a joint show called the joint show called the joint show in uh, January, I'm sorry, July 17th, 1967 of the big five of their posters of their art. Really? So this was really early on that it was recognized as art. Um, but still, um, I'm sure it's frustrating for them, as it is for all living artists, to see their work that they sold for a price originally right. to be going for much more. The poster artists, particularly because they weren't selling their posters, they would simply they were doing work for hire. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I, I'm sure it's a mixed bag where they're they're proud that they have, have achieved the fame that they have. Right. But uh, I'm sure there's got to be some underlying level of bitterness here and there that could crop <laughs> up yeah. um, when you see these posters selling for for a lot of money. 
Yeah, well, some of those guys like uh, Mouse and Kelly had, had pretty substantial careers after the, after the poster art um, period, right? They were doing albums and what have you. They did. Yeah. They did. Uh, great. Anything you want to add? Uh, well, just that we're open on, uh, typically we're open Friday, Saturday, Sunday from 1 to 6. And uh, if you uh, come by, I'm, op- I'm open some other times. If I just happen to be here in the gallery, I just turn the sign around. I'm open. Come on in. Okay. If you see the lava lamps are burning, then, uh, <laughs> then just knock on the door. And I'm also, um, I, I would really prefer the best in all worlds is to have an appointment. Or in other words, just let me know you're coming. Right. I'll make sure I'm here. Um, occasionally my daughter Olivia is here or, or someone else, but I'm usually here and I, I, I certainly want to be able to give you a personal tour and answer any questions that you have. And, and what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, Ted mm-hmm. at bargallery.com and bar is spelled B-A-H-R, bargallery.com. Fantastic. I'll you put can, a link in the show notes and uh, also a few pictures up of uh, some of the posters we've been talking about. Sure. That sounds great. Ted, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. All right. All right. Do you feel experienced? Uh, Good talk, right? About an era in American history that uh, doesn't get the credit it's due for the way we are today. Uh, Anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, It was a blast. And uh, I will be back in a week or two uh, with something else for you to listen to. So meanwhile, enjoy the Grateful Dead on the outro. Visit the bar gallery, get out, support your local businesses, and have a great day, Oyster Bay.